Okay, why don't we all stand and let's do our scripture reading together. And uh, boy, what a glorious, glorious transition from over there to over here. I don't know why you guys let me hog all the rewards. Anyone can come lead worship for us. If you have the gift, please, I'm more than willing to, to share, the, uh, share the blessings. So uh, it's great to see everybody today. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, let's, uh, let's read our text, okay? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 16, and let's, uh, for context's sake, let's just go from 16 down to where we're going to be today, which is verse 19, okay? Let's read the Word of God. This is what the Word of God says. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Let's pray together one more time. Father, um, Lord, we know that we live in a world that is so desperately in need to be reconciled to you. Father, we know that we live in a world that has gone insane because of sin, where in a matter of two weeks, someone can walk into a mall and shoot two people dead and then shoot themselves in the head. And someone can walk into an elementary school and shoot 20 children under the age of seven and shoot teachers and then shoot themselves and take their own life. And just today, another man walked into a, another mall and thank goodness, thank you God that he didn't kill anybody, but he opened fire and shot off 50 rounds from a, a, a machine gun. God, we are living exactly in the type of times that you promised we would be living in. Second Timothy chapter 3 says that we are living in fierce, fierce times. And God, this message of reconciliation could not come at a better time. We cannot speak it into a better culture. We cannot speak it into a better situation, into a better context. And there couldn't be more important time than right now for your church to rise up and to tell the world what's wrong with the world. And Father, I pray that to that end that you would use this scripture in front of us today to equip us, to fill us. Fill us, God, with the knowledge of God. Fill us with wisdom and grace and knowledge so that we'll be able to admonish, we'll be able to teach, we'll be able to preach, We'll be able to share with our neighbor the good news of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. 
We pray all these things in the wonderful, mighty, majestic, and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, um, this, uh, this passage here is so incredibly powerful, um, so neat. Um, it's just, uh, it flows right out of what the Apostle Paul talked about in verse 16, um, that uh, we are new creatures in Christ, that something wonderful has taken place so that there is an old you and a new you if you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, there's supposed to be an old you and a new you. And the old you, if you look back at verse 16, does not recognize anyone anymore according to the flesh, which means this, that according to your old sinful godless standards, morals, and perspectives, those standards and those morals, that worldview is gone. And you no longer regard people in a non-spiritual way. How do you know that? Because Paul says right after that, we knew Christ in that way. There was a time where we knew Christ in a non-spiritual way. Christ was just an idea. Christ was just a religion. Christ was just a figure. He was just a historical person. He was somebody that religious fanatics would believe in. And you had no regard for the true Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture. But as Scripture goes on to say, we know Him in that way no longer. Why? Because we are a new creation. The old way of looking at things is gone the new things have come. New perspective. The, the blinders over our eyes have been pulled back. The veil has been lifted. We can see who Jesus is. And we can also see who everybody else is. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. You are either a child of Adam or you're a child of God. That's the end of the story. You're either a believer and you have the hope of eternal life, you have the glorious hope of heaven laid in front of you, and so that your whole life is blessing. You're blessed by God. Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute iniquity. You are a, you are a child of God. You are blessed. Under Adam, you're a child of the curse. You're an accursed child. You're a child without God in the world, as Scripture says, without hope. And, oh, my heart breaks for people that are in that position, that are in the world without God, without hope, no direction, no spiritual vision to see going along with the influence of the world and all of its satanic influence. But now Paul brings us to the matter at hand and why it is and how it is that someone becomes a new creation. It comes through the fruit of reconciliation. The fruit of reconciliation. And really, uh, last week we looked at a couple things. We had a, new, uh, we had a new perspective that God had given us, and that was rooted, or a new nature, and that was rooted in the fact that we are a new creation. And if I can add one more point to that list, God also gives us a new ministry. This ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about here. Let me begin by just talking about uh, what this ministry is based on. Okay, I'm going to give you three things that the ministry of reconciliation is based on. But before I do that, let's read verses 18 and 19 again because that's our focus. He says, now all these things are from God 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is the new ministry that Paul has. As a Jew, as a Pharisee, Paul's main focus as a Pharisee and as a, 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 in Judaism was to minister the law, to minister the Torah, if you would. But now, under the new covenant, his new ministry is this ministry of reconciliation, this word he calls it, the word of reconciliation. You can translate that, the message of of reconciliation in Christ. In other words, how does God reconcile sinners to Himself? It's in Christ. That's how it happens. So I want to give you three things, three aspects of this new ministry and what it's based on. Number one, we can see very clearly from the text that for Paul, this ministry is based on the sovereignty of God. Notice what he says, how he opens verse 18. He says, now all these things are from God. And so he's looking back to the new creation, back to the change that took place, and says that phenomena, that radical regeneration, new birth, the miracle of a new person, where does that come from? It comes from God. You see, I did not wake up on that August afternoon, whenever it was, and on my to-do list, I had on my to-do list, become a born-again Christian, lose all of your friends, become an outcast in your own family, get everybody angry at you because you're this Jesus free. That wasn't on my to-do list, but it was on God's to-do list. See, God sovereignly chose that that day, that night, whenever it was, my eyes would be open and that I would no longer have regard for people according to the flesh. The first thing I did after I got saved is I preached to as many people as I could around me. Asked my sister. I think she's here. I screamed at her. I yelled at her. And I told her, you're, you're a sinner. You're going to hell. This is serious. I probably freaked her out of her mind. She's probably thinking, what happened? Well, this happened. This verse right here happened. These things are from God. And God produced a new creature in me and in you if you are in Christ today. This is all owing to the sovereign activity of God. Salvation, after all, is of the Lord. That's what Jonah 2.9 says. Salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to Him. The heart of the psalmist cries out with that same message. That same message Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, it's His. It's His plan. It's His idea. It is according to His wisdom. It's His decree to save it's according to God's infinite counsel. And as a matter of fact, in Psalm 37, 39 says, the salvation of the righteousness is from the Lord. Is from the Lord. God tells Israel, he says, that he alone is the Savior. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. That's why he can say in Isaiah 45, verse 17, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. It is a sovereign work of God. But not only does God describe himself as the origin of salvation, notice in the text, that's what it is. It's from him. It stems, it 
flows out of him. Oh, and thank goodness that it does. Thank the Lord that, that, that it comes from him and that um, he brings little messengers to you. Uh, uh. Yes, sir. Oh, it was for Trish? We're one. We are one, so it's okay. That's okay. Brothers, we're not professionals, remember? We're not. We're running a corporation here. This is a family. Uh, okay, so let's go back. Let me try to get back in the spirit of things here. Um, not only does God describe himself as the divine origin of salvation, it comes from him, but he is also the goal of salvation, and he is also the agent through which salvation comes, namely through Christ. Look at what he says. He says, he, it all comes from him who reconciled us to himself. Brothers and sisters, it would not be a good message here today if we fell short of that little personal pronoun, himself. See, if God just saved us to put us on some utopian planet somewhere, I would say it's still not all that it could be. If the Jehovah Witnesses are right, then that is a defective view of salvation, that God is simply going to save us, leave us in our own little paradise, and then he himself, almost like a deistic view of God, is still separate from creation, separate from us, un unaccessible to us. But no, the end of salvation is God himself. This is why John Piper, for example, wrote the book, God is the Gospel. And I see what he's saying in passages like this. What is the end goal of salvation? Why do people become Christians? Why do people become born again? It's not just to lead a different life. I say this so much, but it's so needed and it's so true. It's not just so that you can go from watching rotten carnal movies to watching good, clean, moral movies. You stop listening to all the dirty talk radio, and now you listen to good, clean Christian radio. That's called moralism. That is a philosophy that teaches the only thing you need to do is some sort of external reform. You need to reform your habits. But that is not why God saves us. He saves us, brothers and sisters, to bring us into fellowship with himself. Isn't that glorious? Our salvation is so glorious because the goal, the end goal of salvation is fellowship with God himself. There could be no higher calling for mankind. It is not a narcissistic gospel where heaven is going to consist of a hall of mirrors where you will for all eternity enjoy looking at yourself. No, heaven is the eternal, what the Puritans called the beatific vision, an eternal gazing upon the glory and the fury of God himself. I can think of no higher, and I would challenge you, you cannot conceive of anything higher than that than infinite beauty being revealed to you at an infinite degree for all infinity. There is nothing conceivable that's higher than that. That's what we were created for. We are created in the image of God for that very purpose, so that we can reflect His glory, so that we are able to endure His glory. It's as if God is preparing us to land on the sun. If you go to the sun right now, you're not going to last long enough to enjoy it. 
But let's say that you were manufactured some high-tech NASA suit that they could put around you so that you can actually be thrusted onto the sun and you can walk around and enjoy the flames and, and, and the color and not be, not be incinerated by it. That is what heaven is. Heaven is when a human being is clothed in the righteousness of Christ that serves like, if you would, a force field around him, shielding him and protecting him and making it possible for him to dwell in the presence of God. That's why, that's why Moses could go no further than a burning bush. That's why the high priest couldn't go any further than the veil. And there were all sorts of stipulations around that. And that is because they lacked the absolute perfect positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. But when we have that and when we are transformed, when we are changed from these fallen, decaying bodies and we are given our new heavenly body, we will be able to enjoy God forever. This is why God saves us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, it says, God is faithful who also called uh, you, who called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What did Jesus tell His disciples? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. We will make our abode with him. So glorious, this message of reconciliation. Well, this is the first time it appears, this word reconciliation in the letter, when Paul says, now all things are from God, who reconciled us to himself. So the word reconciliation needs to be defined. What does it mean? The word reconciliation was a common term in the ancient world, and it spoke primarily of financial exchanges. When you would sort of go into a financial transaction, you would exchange one thing for another, maybe bartering. You know, they have like reality shows now where they barter and they, you know, they try to make something interesting out of that. But anyway, the truth is, is that that's what God in a sense has done. There's been an exchange. And what is it that has been exchanged? Well, in the past, the word was used to refer, refer uh, to exchanging peace for war. This is Murray Harris's commentary. Love for anger, friendship for enmity. And that last part is really what the New Testament is focusing on. Friendship in place of enmity. That is what God has exchanged. He's done it on a human level. That is, he's dealt with human relationships, earthly relationships, primarily the biggest breach in all human relationships that has ever existed on planet Earth. It's not black and white. It's Jew and Gentile. That is the greatest ethnic divide that has ever existed in the world. And God overcame that divide through Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, it says that he would reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body to God through the cross. By it, he says, he put to death the enmity. That word enmity means hostility. It means that they were at odds. They were at war. They were at each other. There was a hostile environment between Jew and Gentile. But he also did this with everything else. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, for example, he says much the same thing. He says... That, we were that he is reconciled through Christ, 
he reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What is God doing? God is doing a new work. God is creating a new humanity. God is headed for a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation all around. That's what God is doing. And we, brothers and sisters, are the first fruits of that. We talked about that last week. But the obvious exchange here again is that God has overcome our hostility to Him, our enmity. You know, we were born at odds with God. Nobody is born right with God. Because of Adam, you are born with a sinful nature. Because of your sinful nature, you are naturally hostile to God. Because God is naturally opposed to sin. Because God is holy. This is what God has done. Romans chapter 1, verse 30, talks about those who hate God. Every single one of us before salvation were haters of God. We despised God by preferring other things to Him. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, God said, why have you despised me? And David certainly probably scratched his head and thought, wait a minute, I wasn't despising you. Sure, I was loving her or lusting after her, but I didn't mean to despise you. But you see, that's what it is when you prefer anything other than God. But you prefer other things than God. That's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2. The children of Israel had preferred their own cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water. And they had rejected and they had forgotten and they had left their God who was all infinitely satisfying. And they went for things that did not satisfy. So God overcomes our hostility. And how does he do, how does he do it? He does it through Christ. This is central. This is the key to all of it. This is central to reconciliation. How does God reconcile hostile, hateful, sinful man to himself? Through Christ. That's what he did. And he not only sovereignly chooses us for salvation, but he also sovereignly chooses Paul, for example, here, for a ministry. So he's sovereign over both. He, he grants and he energizes the ministry and the regeneration of his people. For example, Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, Paul saw this as an evidence of God's grace in his life, not just that he was chosen for salvation, but also that he was chosen for ministry. He says, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. I love that because it just shows that Paul's conversion was not, uh, uh, was not the result of human activity. It wasn't as if the apostles got him in a corner and just, you know, and convinced him and just taught him all these things about Christianity so that he converted. He had a supernatural, divine and miraculous conversion on that Damascus road. So God chooses us. He is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over our ministry. And that's found in the words here where Paul says, not only are these things from God, he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, but watch this, 
He also gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So really, verse 18 is kind of a summary of everything he's going to say in verse 19. He's going to expand on it. He's going to enlarge upon it and even down into verses 20 and 21, namely about his ministry. But you know that ministry, we should not overlook that fact. Look at what it says again. He gave us, he granted to us this ministry. Ministry is a grace, and that's the way that Paul sees it. Ministry is not a a, a right. Nobody has the right to be in ministry. Ministry is a privilege granted to us by God. And should God choose to use us in some ministry or some capacity, it is because of His grace and nothing else. We don't deserve it. As Paul already taught, we are not adequate for it. We don't have the resources within ourselves. These are all given to us supernaturally by the Spirit of God so that in the end, grace, the whole concept of grace is almost looked at as one big act of grace by God. That's why in Philippians 1, 7, he talks about his ministry as partaking in grace. In 2 Corinthians 8, 7, he speaks about his ministry to the poor churches in, in Jerusalem, and he says, he calls it this gracious work. It is a work of God's grace. But now let me give you two other elements. Not only is this ministry based on the sovereignty of God, but it's also based on the mercy of God. And I get that from the fact of reconciliation itself. Look at what what it says. It goes on to say here that that, that, that God reconciled us to Himself through Christ. And then look at verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's the mercy of God, that God would not count your sin against you. And uh, we should also notice the God-centeredness of this, that it is according to God's grace. If God did not choose to have mercy and grace in the first place, there would be no reconciliation. You would never have been reconciled to God had God not chosen to show grace. And this, all of this grace is also in Christ. It's Christ-centered. It's in Christ that it took place. And any time the Bible talks about God doing something in Christ, what does it mean? He did it in his body, in his flesh, like his physical body. Well, for sure, his physical body was the instrument that God used to make reconciliation, to make propitiation. I hope you know what propitiation means by now. Propitiation means that the wrath of God has been taken away. It has been absorbed by Christ on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God like a sponge on the cross. The wrath that you deserve, He absorbed it into Himself. He bore the curse, it says in Galatians chapter 3. The curse that you deserve, the curse that I deserve for every sin that we've ever committed. What an incredible display of His mercy. Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. Christ alone can reconcile us and take away this hostility. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says that reconciliation is for producing life and taking away death. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, the reason that Christ reconciled us to God is to make us holy. 
And so see, it's not just that you're reconciled to God. There, you know, there was enmity, there was war. You were at odds with God. Now there's peace, and now that's it. No, but now you enter into sanctification. Do you see why this is such a glorious idea, this idea of reconciliation? It bleeds into every other area of soteriology, the study of salvation. It's really marvelous to look at. There's an incredible symmetry here. I want you to look carefully at the text. Because Paul speaks about God's initiative in salvation, he talks about the act of reconciliation, he talks about the means of reconciliation in both verses being through Christ, in Christ, and he talks about the goal of reconciliation, namely that we are brought to God Himself. But here, he enlarges reconciliation. He expands it. No longer does Paul just say he reconciled us, but he extends it to the world which tells me this message of reconciliation, not just the message, but the very act of reconciliation is meant to be shared. It's meant to be shared with others. And what a glorious grace that is, that it isn't as if God just has a a select few in the corner, but that He wants the whole world to hear about this message of reconciliation reconciliation, being put right with God, being brought into a friendly relationship with God. You know that the most dreadful thing in the whole world is to have God angry at you? I heard a preacher this week text something that was so, so harmful. He says, God is not mad at you. God is mad about you. That is so incredibly misleading. Okay, God is not mad at believers He certainly is mad about that. I wouldn't even use that kind of language, but you know what I mean. But if an unbeliever gets a hold of that and says, oh, God's not mad at me. He's mad about me. He must think I'm just the greatest thing in the world. He's my old regular old cosmic cheerleader up there cheering me on, watching my YouTube videos. No, the worst thing in the world is to have God angry at you, and God is angry at you because of your sin. God is infinitely angry because of sin, but He's not angry the way that you and I get angry. You know, you and I, we have very irrational anger, right? It may start off fine. We might have a righteous indignation for a moment, but because we're sinful, it's not too long before our anger becomes very irrational and out of control. But God's anger is not like that. God's anger is calculated and holy and perfectly logical. It is perfect reason. Why? Because sin is insane. Sin in and of itself is the most irrational thing in the world. I mean, think about it. How much does God have to, how far does God have to go to show us this? Think about the garden. That all it took is for one person to prefer one fruit over God and it plunged the whole universe into sin. Is that right? That's right. Because it could have been anything. You could say, well, it it should have been something really bad. No, but you don't understand. The smallest sin is infinitely heinous in the sight of God. Because you have chosen to prefer, I don't care if you prefer an ant. I don't care if you prefer a hair on your head to God. It is absolutely heinous and and, and insulting to God because what it shows is that you have lost your mind. 
What it shows is that you have become insane. That's why the Bible says that sin is the contradiction of the glory of God itself. The glory of God, which causes everything to work properly, everything to operate according, perfectly according to God's perfect will and His perfect wisdom. But when we sin, we mess all that up. But praise the Lord, the story doesn't end there. God endeavors and condescends to us, brothers and sisters. God condescended to us. He came down. He came down. So people say, well, if God is God and, and if God is this and if God is, why doesn't he just come down here and just kind of end it all, right? Just, uh, you know, end all the debate. If God really exists, why doesn't he just appear and come out here and show us? Well, first of all, I'm glad that he doesn't because that means that we would be incinerated on the spot. Number one. Number two, I'm glad that he doesn't because he's long-suffering. He's being patient so that your family members have yet time to repent and yet time to be born again and that you have yet time to speak to them the word of reconciliation. But let me back up. That, that reveals quite the ignorance of the question. God already did show up and he supremely showed up in Christ. Once and for all, God declared to the world who He is, what He is, what He's doing in Christ. You remember the book of Hebrews? Turn there, Hebrews chapter 1, the book of Hebrews, to show this. This is how God was reconciled to the world in Christ. It's all in Christ. He spoke in Christ. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In other words, God spoke in all sorts of different ways, all sorts of various ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Why? Because he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. In other words, Jesus is the exact representative of God the Father. You want to know God? Jesus says, have I not been with you so long? You want to know God the Father? I and the Father are one. What you see and hear and what you know in Jesus, you know of the nature of the Father. And so he goes on. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is the work of reconciliation being accomplished. This is so incredibly glorious. I just, I almost can't even contain. I want to throw my notes away. It's so glorious. I just want to preach. I know Josh would probably like that a whole lot. There is an infinite mercy that's been extended to us. Romans chapter, one, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's what reconciliation is all about. There is peace with God. The hostility is over. The war is over. I can testify. I don't know about you. I could testify to 19 years of my life, or at least when I became somewhat sub, you know, conscious of my existence. I don't know, somewhere around high school probably. <laughs> but uh, I can remember being at war with God every day of my life. 
knowing that the life I was living was wrong, sinful, knowing that the things I was doing were immoral and against him, and my conscience would smite me every time that I would engage in that sin or that act. God would always be, be, be prosecuting me, and my, my, my conscience would be the, 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 the witness on the stand saying, yep, he did it, yep, he did it, yep, he did it. Conscience is amazing. Records everything you do. It's, it's part of you, but you have no control over it whatsoever. It's just there. Ray Comfort recently did a video. It went around, asked people what they thought of their conscience, and if they listened to their conscience, several people said, I don't like to listen to my conscience. You see, because it's exactly what the Bible says, Romans chapter 2, verse 15. They have the work of the law written in their heart. Their conscience is smiting them every day of their sin that they need to be reconciled with God. And this is the salvation that they need right here, that God would not count their trespasses against them. That is what reconciliation means. It means that God has sovereignly chosen not to count our sins against us. This is why when a person is justified, when a person is born again, you are forgiven. You are so forgiven that you are forgiven for your past, your present, and your future sins. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. That's how much grace God has for you. If that's not true, that God has forgiven you for past, present, and future sins, then you cannot say with Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't say that because of the sin that you committed that day or the sin that you will commit or the sin that you committed on the way to church today. You can't say that. But the gospel, the grace of God is so glorious, brothers and sisters, that it almost tempts you with antinomianism. It did the people Paul was writing to and he had to remind them, no, 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 no. No antinomianism here, meaning you can live lawless. If God is so good and so gracious and he's forgiven me so much, well, I could just live like the devil? Absolutely not. He uses the strongest negation possible. God forbid. In no, by no means. He says, shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? You see, if you truly have a new nature, it's in your nature not to want to live in sin anymore. Because the law, guess what? The law is no, no longer, you know, you don't need to hang the commandments all over your house. Right? And hang the Ten Commandments in your shower and hang the Ten Commandments in your bathroom and in your wall. Well, might be cool, so I'll come over if you do it and I'll check it out. But you don't got to do that because God has written it in your heart. That's what the new birth is all about. That's what reconciliation is about. The law is written in our hearts so that we naturally love to do God's will. And let me tell you this right now. If you don't love to do God's will, then you're not born again. It's that simple. If there isn't at least a minimal level of love for God and love for His Word and love for obedience, then that's probably really bad evidence that there's no regeneration in your heart, that there's no new nature, that there's not been a new creation, that you're still in your sins, and that you need this reconciliation that Paul is talking about right here. Last part. Not only is it based on the sovereignty of God, this ministry of reconciliation, it's based on the mercy of God because He chose not to count, not to reckon our sins against us. But lastly, it's based on the message of God. 
The message of God. And I get that from the word where he says here, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul saw himself as being entrusted with a divine trust, with a trust of salvation, with a trust of truth, divine truth in the gospel. That's why he tells Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, Timothy, oh, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard the deposit, the, 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 the deposit of truth, that treasure trunk of truth called the gospel, called the Bible. As a matter of fact, that's the way this enlarges. It expands to that. The word of reconciliation is essentially synonymous with the gospel. And the gospel is synonymous with, with what Scripture calls the word of truth. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, James chapter 1, verse 18, and the word of truth is also called the word of God in 2 Timothy 2, 15. That's what it's being referred to or defined as, and it has been given to us. And what is it that we talk to our unsaved loved ones about? What is it that we talk to our unsaved neighbor about? We talk to them about the message of reconciliation. This is it right here. This is what you impress them with. You don't impress them with how great your church is. You don't impress them with how big your church is. You don't impress them by technology. You don't impress them with drama and skits and acting and, and art. You impress them. I don't know if you're not going to impress them. You might even turn them away. But I'd rather you turn people away with the truth than for you to deceive people with a lie. Just recently, I had some uh, friends stay at the house. They wrote a book called Falsified. And the book is all about their journey as false converts in the church. That for a long time, they went to church, they sat in church, and they weren't born again. And they went from seeker church to seeker church. And they had false assurance, and they had pastors giving them false assurance, and they had no true regeneration. Until finally they were born again, they really understood just how deceived they were. And just how bad it was at those churches that refused to talk about sin, refused to talk about hell, refused to talk about judgment. My friends, that's not a church. That's not a church. That's a social club. That's, a, that's someone's career. That's somebody's hobby. But it's not a church. The church of the living God sits is the buttress of truth. That is the the foundation of truth rests upon the church. The church is to lift up and exalt and to prop up the truth. And that's why I like that he used the word here, word, logos. Why? Because it's through propositional truth that the word of God is communicated. It's not through acting. It's not just through good deeds. It's not just by being a good person. Maybe somebody will, you know, pick up on your good deeds and, you know, want to be like you, that's fine. But guess what? Only the word of reconciliation can save them. Only hearing, as the scripture says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's why 
First and foremost, the ministry of reconciliation is a word ministry. That's why we put so much emphasis on this, what I'm doing right now, standing up here preaching and yelling and, 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 and speaking out of this book and, 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 and studying for 20, 30 hours a week to bring you propositional truth. We put a high premium on that. That's why during our Sunday school class, we don't just get around to just kind of, you know, talk about our week. But we want to be filled with the knowledge of God. We want, to, we want to know the good doctrine of Scripture. We want to grow in grace and knowledge just like the Bible calls us to do. And that's what we talk to people about. Let me tell you something about the ministry of reconciliation. I closed my notes, but I remember I jotted down a couple things, just practical points that I wanted to uh, sort of emphasize. But I tell you, right now is a great time to engage in evangelism. You know why? because of the things I mentioned in my prayer when we started out. Because we live in a world that so desperately needs to be reconciled to God. We live in a world, I, I almost can't take it anymore. My wife walks in and she tells me about this shooting in Newton, Connecticut. I wrote a blog entry. You can go to our website and read the blog post I put up there. But, you know, when she first mentioned it, I thought, okay, somebody shot somebody, you know, it happens all the time. 20 kids, 20 kids under the age of seven? Josh told me last night that would be like 20 little ethnies being snuffed out by some crazy lunatic. And people are groping for answers. It's even on the headlines of the major newsreels. Where was God? What does God have to do with all of this? Now is a great time, brothers and sisters, to bring meaningful answers. And you have them because you have the gospel. People need to be reconciled to God and we have the words that they need to hear. Amen? I want to leave you with, um, well, let's pray, and then I'll, I'll read the scripture to you. Let's pray as we close together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, first I want to thank you, God, for reconciling us to yourself, those of us who are in Christ. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for revealing your Son in us for not counting our sins against us. God, have so many sins. Had so many sins, I still have sins. God, there's just, I sin every day, thought, word, or deed. And God, we'll never not sin until we get to heaven. But I'm so grateful uh, that you chose in your own sovereignty to send your son Jesus to shed his blood, to die on the cross, to be our substitute, to die in our place. Father, thank you so much for the ministry of reconciliation. Having experienced it, would you give us the, the zeal? Would you give us the strength and the power that we need and the concern and the love to share it with others? Whatever, whatever that looks like for anyone here, whatever that looks like to whoever they can, May, you share, may we share that message that has changed our lives with others who so desperately need to be delivered from their sin and their hostility with God. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to leave you with a scripture from Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 1, okay? Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. This is how we'll close our service, okay? Because my voice, I think, is, is, is pretty tapped out. 
Um, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, kind of sums up everything that the Apostle Paul was talking about, okay? He says, verse 19, he says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and you were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You see that? Every single one of us can minister the message of reconciliation. You don't got to be a pastor to do it. You don't got to be a missionary or or an evangelist. You don't got to be an apostle. But as the book of Philippians shows us very clearly, we can all share and participate in the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I pray that you have a great and glorious day.